Section 3 of His Family This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson His Family by Ernest Poole Chapter 7 in the weeks which followed, Roger found the peace of his home so interrupted and disturbed by wedding preparations that often retreating into his den he earnestly told himself he was through, that a man with three grown daughters was a fool to show any sympathy with the utter folly of their lives. Yield an inch and they took a mile. It began one night when Deborah said, Now, dearie, I think you had better make up your mind to give Laura just the kind of wedding she likes. And Roger weakly agreed to this, but as time wore on he discovered that the kind of wedding Laura liked was a thing that made his blood run cold. There seemed to be no end whatever to the young bride's blithe demands. The trousseau part of it he didn't mind. To the gowns and hats and gloves and shoes and trunks and jaunty travelling bags which came pouring into the house he made no objection. All that he considered was fair play. But what got on Roger's nerves was this frantic fuss and change. The faded hall carpet had to come up, his favourite lounge was whisked away, the piano was retuned while he was trying to take a nap. Rugs were beaten, crates and barrels filled the halls, and one whole bedroom, stripped and bare, was transformed into a shop where the wedding presents were displayed. In the shuffle his box of cigars disappeared. In short, there was the devil to pay. And Deborah was as bad as the bride. At times it appeared to Roger as though her fingers fairly itched to jab and tug at his poor old house which wore an air of mute reproach. She revealed a part of her nature that he viewed with dark amazement. Every hour she could spare from school she was changing something or other at home, with an eager glitter in her eyes. Doing it all for Laura, she said, fiddlesticks and rubbish. She did it because she liked it. In gloomy wrath, one afternoon, he went up to see Edith and quiet down. She was well on the way to recovery, but instead of receiving solace here, he only found fresh troubles. For sitting up in her old-fashioned bed, with an old-fashioned cap of lace upon her shapely little head, Edith made her father feel she had washed her hands of the whole affair. "'I'm sorry,' she said in an injured tone, "'that Laura doesn't care enough about her oldest sister to put off the wedding two or three weeks so I could be there.' It seems rather undignified, I think, for a girl to hurry her wedding so. I should have loved to make it the dear simple kind of wedding which mother would have wanted. But so long as she doesn't care for that, and in fact has only found ten minutes once to run in and see the baby. In dismay her father found himself debending the very daughter of whom he had come to complain. It was not such a short engagement, he said. He had learned they had been engaged some time before they told him. "'Do you approve of that?' she rejoined. "'When I was engaged, I made Bruce go to you before I even let him.' Here Edith broke off primly. "'Of course that was some time ago. An engagement, Laura tells me, is a mere experiment nowadays. They experiment till they feel quite sure, then notify their parents, and get married in a week.' "'She is rushing it, I admit.' Roger soothingly replied. 
but she has her mind set on Paris in June. Paris in June, said Edith, sums up in three words Laura's whole conception of marriage. You really ought to talk to her father. It's your duty, it seems to me. What do you mean? I'd rather not tell you, Edith's glance went sternly to the cradle by her bed. Laura pities me, she said, for having had five children. Oh, now, my dear girl. She does, though. She said as much. When she dropped in the other day, and I tried to be sympathetic and give her a little sound advice, she said I had had the wedding I liked, and the kind of married life I liked, and she was going to have hers. And she made it quite plain that her kind is to include no children. It's to be simply an effort to find by experiment whether or not she loves Hal Sloane. If she doesn't, Edith gave a slight but emphatic wave of dismissal. Do you mean to say Laura told you that? her father asked, with an angry frown. I mean she made me feel it as plainly as I'm telling it. What I can't understand, his daughter went on, is Deborah's attitude in the affair. What's the matter with Deborah? inquired Roger dismally. Oh, nothing's the matter with Deborah. She's quite self-sufficient. She, at least, can play with modern ideas and keep her head while she's doing it. But when poor Laura, a mere child with the mind of a chicken, catches vaguely at such ideas, applies them to her own little self, and risks her whole future happiness, it seems to me perfectly criminal for Deborah not to interfere. Not even a word of warning. Deborah believes, said her father, in everyone's leading his own life. That's rot, was Edith's curt reply. Do I lead my own life? Does Bruce? Do you? No, growled Roger feelingly. Do my children? Edith demanded. I know Deborah would like them to. That's her latest and most modern fad, to run a school where every child shall sit with a rat on its lap or a goat and do just what he pleases, follow his natural bent, she says. I hope she won't come up to the mountains and practice on my children. I should hate to break with Deborah, Edith ended thoughtfully. Roger rose and walked the room. The comforting idea entered his mind that when the wedding was over, he would take out his collection of rings and carefully polish every one. But even this hope did not stay with him long. With Laura at home, he heard Edith continue, you at least have a daughter to run your house. If Deborah tries to move you out, she won't, cried Roger in alarm. If she does, persisted Edith, or if she begins any talk of the kind, you come to me and I'll talk to her. Her father walked in silence, his head down, frowning at the floor. It seems funny, Edith continued, that women like me who give children their lives, and men like Bruce who are building New York, actually doing it all the time, have so little to say in these modern ideas. I suppose it's because we're a little too real. To come back to the wedding, Roger suggested. To come back to the wedding, father dear, his daughter said compassionately. I'm afraid it's going to be a mere form, which will make you rather wretched. When you get so you can't endure it, come in and see me and the baby. As he started for home, her words of warning recurred to his mind. Yes, here was the thing that disturbed him most, the ghost lurking under all this confusion, the part which had to do with himself. 
It was bad enough to know that his daughter, his own flesh and blood, was about to settle her fate at one throw. But to be moved out of his house, bag and baggage, Roger strode wrathfully up the street. It's your duty to talk to her, Edith had said, and he meditated darkly on this. Maybe I will, and maybe I won't. I know my duties without being told. How does Edith know what her mother liked? We had our own likings, her mother and I, and our own ideas long after she was tucked into bed. And yet she's always harping on what mother would have wanted. What I should like to know right now is what Judith would want if she were here. With a pang of utter loneliness amid these vexing problems, Roger felt it crowding in this city of his children's lives. As he strode on down Broadway, an old hag selling papers thrust one in his face, and he caught a glimpse of a headline, Some Big Wig Woman Redivorced. How about Laura's experiment? A mob of street urchins nearly upset him. How about Deborah? How about children? How about schools, education, the country? How about God? Was anyone thinking? Had anyone time? What a racket it made, slam-banging along. The taxis and motor-trucks thundered and brayed, dark masses of people swept endlessly by, as though their very souls depended on their dinners or their jobs, their movies, roaring farces, thrills, their harem-scarum dances, clothes, a plump little fool of a woman, her skirt so tight she could barely walk, tripped by on high-heeled slippers. That was it, he told himself. The whole city was high-heeled. No solid footing anywhere. And, good Lord, how they chattered! He turned into a less noisy street. What would Judith want if she were here? It became disturbingly clear to him that she would undoubtedly wish him to have a talk with Laura now, find out if she'd really made up her mind not to have any children, and if so, to tell her plainly that she was not only going against her God, but risking her own happiness. For though Judith had been liberal about any number of smaller things, she had been decidedly clear on this. Yes, he must talk to Laura. And she'll tell me, he reflected, that Edith put me up to it. If only his oldest daughter would leave the other girls alone. Here she was planning a row with Deborah over whether poor young George should be allowed to play with rats. It was all so silly. Yes, his three children were drifting apart, each one of them going her separate way, and he rather took comfort in the thought, for at least it would stop their wrangling. But again he pulled himself up with a jerk. No, certainly Judith would not have liked this. If she'd ever stood for anything, it was for keeping the family together. It had been the heart and center of their last talks before she died. His face relaxed as he walked on, but in his eyes was a deeper pain. If only Judith could be here. Before he reached home he had made up his mind to talk with Laura that very night. He drew out his latch-key, opened his door, shut it firmly, and strode into his house. In the hall they were putting down the new carpet. Cautiously picking his way upstairs, he inquired for Laura and was told she was dressing for dinner. He knocked at her door. "'Yes?' came her voice. "'It is I,' he said, "'your father.' 
Oh, hello, Dad, came the answer gaily in that high, sweet voice of hers. I'm frightfully rushed. It's a dinner dance tonight for the bridesmaids and the ushers. Roger felt a glow of relief. Come in a moment, won't you? What a resplendent young creature she was, sitting at her dresser. Behind her, the maid with needle and thread was swiftly mending a little tear in the fluffy blue tulle she was wearing. The shaded light just over her head brought a shimmer of red in her sleek brown hair. What lips she had, what a bosom! She drew a deep breath and smiled at him. "'What are you doing tomorrow night?' her father asked her. "'Oh, Dad, my love, we have every evening filled and crammed right up to the wedding,' she replied. "'No, the last evening I'll be here. Hal's giving his ushers a dinner that night. Good, I want to talk to you, my dear.' He felt his voice solemn, a great mistake. He saw the quick glance from her luminous eyes. All right, father, whenever you like. Much embarrassed, Roger left the room. The few days which remained were a crowding confusion of dressmakers, gowns, and chattering friends, and gifts arriving at all hours. As a part of his resolve to do what he could for his daughter, Roger stayed home from his office that week. But all he could do was to unpack boxes, take out presents, and keep the cards, and say, Yes, my dear, it's very nice. Where shall I put this one? As the array of presents grew, from time to time unconsciously he glanced at the engagement ring upon Laura's finger. And all the presents seemed like that. They would suit her apartment beautifully. He'd be glad when they were out of the house. The only gift that appealed to his fancy was a brooch, neither rich nor new, a genuine bit of old jewellery. But rather to his annoyance he learned that it had been sent to Laura by the old Galician Jew in the shop around the corner. It recalled to his mind the curious friendship which had existed for so long between the old man and his daughter, and as she turned the brooch to the light, Roger thought he saw in her eyes anticipations which made him uneasy. Yes, she was a child of his. June in Paris. Other Junes. Experiments. No children. Again he felt he must have that talk, but good Lord, how he dreaded it. The house was almost ready now, dismantled and made new and strange. It was the night before the wedding. Laura was taking her supper in bed. What was he going to say to her? He ate his dinner silently. At last he rose with grim resolution. I think I'll go up and see her, he said. Deborah quickly glanced at him. What for? she asked. Oh, I just want to talk to her. Don't stay long, she admonished him. I've a masseuse coming at nine o'clock to get the child in condition to rest. Her nerves are rather tense, you know. How about mine? he said to himself as he started upstairs. Never mind, I've got to tackle it. Laura saw what he meant to say the moment that he entered the room, and the tightening of her features made it all the harder for Roger to think clearly, to remember the grave, kind, fatherly things which he had intended to tell her. I don't want to talk of the wedding, child, but of what's coming after that, between you and this man, all your life. He stopped short, with his heart in his mouth, for, although he did not look at her, he had a quick sensation, as though he had struck her in the face. Isn't this rather late to speak about that? 
just now when i'm nervous enough as it is i know i know he spoke hurriedly humbly i should have talked to you long ago i should have known you better child i've been slack and selfish but it's better late than never but you needn't the girl exclaimed you needn't tell me anything i know more than you think i know enough roger looked at her then at the wall she went on in a voice rather breathless i know what i'm doing exactly just what i'm getting into it's not as it was when you were young it's different we talk of these things harold and i have talked it all out in the brief and dangerous pause which followed roger kept looking at the wall have you talked about having children yes came the answer sharply and then he felt the hot clutch of her hand hadn't you better go now dad he hesitated no he said his voice was low do you mean to have children laura i don't know i think you do know do you mean to have children her big black eyes dilating were fixed defiantly on his own well then no i don't she replied he made a desperate effort to think what he could say to her good god how he was bungling where were all his arguments how about your religion he blurted out i haven't any which makes me do that i've a right to be happy you haven't his voice had suddenly changed in accent and in quality it was like a voice from the heart of new england where he had been born and bred i mean you won't be happy not unless you have a child it's what you need it'll fill your life it'll settle you deepen you tone you down suppose i don't want to be toned down the girl was almost hysterical i'm no puritan i want to live i tell you we are different now we're not all like edith and we're not like our mothers we want to live and we have a right to why don't you go can't you see i'm nearly crazy it's my last night my very last i don't want to talk to you i don't even know what i'm saying and you come and try to frighten me her voice caught and broke into sobs you know nothing about me you never did leave me alone can't you leave me alone father he heard deborah's voice abrupt and stern outside the door i'm sorry he said hoarsely he went in blind fashion out of the room and down to his study he lit a cigar and smoked wretchedly there when presently deborah appeared he saw that her face was set and hard but as she caught the baffled look the angry tortured light in his eyes her own expression softened poor father she said in a pitying way if edith had only let you alone i certainly didn't do much good of course you didn't you did harm oh so much more harm than you know into the quiet voice of his daughter crept a note of keen regret i wanted to make her last days in this house a time she could look back on so that she'd want to come home for help if ever she's in trouble she has so little don't you see of what a woman needs these days she has grown up so badly oh if you'd only let her alone it was such a bad bad time to choose she went to her father and kissed him well it's over now she said and we'll make the best we can of it i'll tell her you're sorry and quiet her down and tomorrow we'll try to forget it has happened 
For Roger the morrow went by in a whirl. The wedding, a large church affair, was to take place at twelve o'clock. He arose early, put on his Prince Albert, went down and ate his breakfast alone. The waitress was flustered, the coffee was burnt. He finished and anxiously wandered about. The maids were bustling in and out, with Deborah giving orders pell-mell. The caterers came trooping in. The bridesmaids were arriving and hurrying up to Roger's room. That place was soon a chaos of voices, giggles, peals of laughter. Laura's trunks were brought downstairs, and Roger tagged them for the ship, one for the cabin and three for the hold, and saw them into the wagon. Then he strode distractedly everywhere, till at last he was hustled by Deborah into a taxi waiting outside. "'It's all going smoothly,' Deborah said, and a faint sardonic glimmer came into her father's hunted eyes. Deborah was funny. Soon he found himself in the church. He heard whispers, eager voices, heard one usher say to another, "'God, what a terrible head I've got!' And Roger glared at him for that. Plainly, these youngsters, all mere boys, had been up with the groom a good part of the night. But here was Laura, pale and tense. She smiled at him and squeezed his hand. There was silence, then the organ, and now he was taking her up the aisle. Strange faces stared. His jaw set hard. At last they reached the altar. An usher quickly touched his arm, and he stepped back where he belonged. He listened, but understood nothing, just words, words and motions. If any man can show just cause why they may not be lawfully joined together, let him now speak, or else hereafter forever hold his peace. No, thought Roger, I won't speak. Just then he caught sight of Deborah's face, and at the look in her steady grey eyes, all at once he could feel the hot tears in his own. At the wedding breakfast he was gay to a boisterous degree. He talked to strange women and brought them food, took punch with men he had never laid eyes on, went off on a feverish hunt for cigars, came back distractedly, joked with young girls, and even started some of them dancing. The whole affair was over in no time. The bride and groom came rushing downstairs, and as they escaped from the shower of rice, Roger ran after them down the steps. He gripped Sloane's hand. "'Remember, boy, it's her whole life,' entreated Roger hoarsely. "'Yes, sir. I'll look out, no fear. Good-bye, Daddy. God bless you, dear.' They were speeding away, and with the best man, who looked weary and spent, Roger went slowly back up the steps. It was an effort now to talk. Thank heaven these people soon were gone. Last of all went the ponderous aunt of the groom. How the taxi groaned as he helped her inside and started her off to Bridgeport. Back in his study he found his cigars and smoked one dismally with Bruce. Bruce was a decent sort of chap. He knew when to be silent. Well, he said, finally rising, I guess I'll have to go back to the office. He smiled a little and put his hand on Roger's weary shoulder. "'We're glad it's over, hey?' he asked. "'Bruce,' said Roger heavily, "'you've got a girl of your own growing up. "'Don't let her grow to feel you're old. "'Live on with her. "'She'll need you.' "'His massive blunt face darkened. 
the world's so damnably new he muttered so choked up with fool ideas bruce still smiled affectionately go up and see edith he said and forget em she never lets one into the flat she said you were to be sure to come and tell her about the wedding all right i'll go said roger he hunted about for his hat and coat what a devilish mess they had made of the house a half an hour later he was with edith but there despite his efforts to answer all her questions he grew heavier and heavier till at last he barely spoke he sat watching edith's baby did you talk to laura he heard her ask yes he replied it did no good he knew that edith was waiting for more but he kept doggedly silent well dear she said presently at least you did what you could for her i've never done what i could he rejoined not with any one of you he glanced at her with a twinge of pain i don't know as it would have helped much if i had this town is running away with itself i want a rest now edith i want things quiet for a while he felt her anxious pitying look where's deborah she asked him gone back to school already i don't know where she is he replied and then he rose forlornly i guess i'll be going back home he said on his way as his thoughts slowly cleared the old uneasiness rose in his mind would deborah want to keep the house suppose she suggested moving to some titty-tatty little flat no he would not stand in her way but lord what an end to make of his life his home was almost dark inside but he noticed rather to his surprise that the rooms had already been put in order he sank down on the living-room sofa and lay motionless for a while how tired he was from time to time he drearily sighed yes deborah would find him old and life here dull and lonely where was she tonight he wondered couldn't she quit her zoo school for one single afternoon at last when the room had grown pitch dark he heard the maid lighting the gas in the hall roger loudly cleared his throat and at the sound the startled girl ejaculated oh my god it's i said roger sternly did miss deborah say when she'd be back she didn't go out sir she's up in her room roger went up and found her there all afternoon with both the maids she had been setting the house to rights and now she ached in every limb she was lying on her bed and she looked as though she had been crying where have you been she inquired at edith's her father answered she reached up and took his hand and held it slowly tighter you aren't going to find it too lonely here with laura gone she asked him and the wistfulness in her deep voice made something thrill in roger why should i he retorted deborah gave a queer little laugh oh i'm just silly that's all she said i've been having a fit of blues i've been feeling so old this afternoon a regular old woman i wanted you dearie and i was afraid that you she broke off look here said roger sharply do you really want to keep this house keep this house why father you think you can stand it here alone just the two of us he demanded i can cried deborah happily her father walked to the window there as he looked blindly out his eyes were assaulted by the lights of all those titty-tatty flats 
and a look of vicious triumph appeared for a moment on his face. Very well, he said, quietly, turning back. Then we're both suited. He went to the door. I'll go and wash up for supper. Chapter 8 It was a relief to him to find how smoothly he and Deborah dropped back into their old relations. It was good to get home those evenings, for in this new stage of its existence, with its family of two, the house appeared to have filled itself with a deep, reposeful feeling. Laura had gone out of its life. He glanced into her room one night, and it looked like a guest-room now. The sight of it brought him a pang of regret. But the big ship which was bearing her swiftly away to Paris in June seemed bearing off Roger's uneasiness, too. He could smile at his former fears, for Laura was safely married and wildly in love with her husband. Time, he thought, would take care of the rest. Occasionally he missed her here, her voice high-pitched but musical, chatting and laughing at the phone, her bustle of dressing to go out, glimpses of her extravagances, of her smart suits and evening gowns, of all the joyous color and dash that she had given to his home. But these regrets soon died away. The old house shed them easily, as though glad to enter this long rest. For the story of his family, from Roger's point of view at least, was a long, uneven narrative, with prolonged periods of peace and again with events piling one on the other. And now there came one of those peaceful times, and Roger liked the quiet. The old routine was re-established his dinner, his paper, his cigar, and then his book for the evening, some good old-fashioned novel or some pleasant book of travel which he and Judith had read aloud when they were planning out their lives. They had meant to go abroad so often when the children had grown up, and he liked to read about it still. Life was so quiet over the sea, things were so old and mellow there. He resumed, too, his horseback rides, and on the way home he would stop in for a visit with Edith and her baby. The wee boy grew funnier every day, with his sudden kicks and sneezes, his waving fists and mighty yawns, and Roger felt drawn to his daughter here, for in these grateful seasons of rest that followed the birth of each of her children, Edith loved to lie very still and make new plans for her small brood. Only once she spoke of Laura, and then it was to suggest to him that he gather together all the bills his daughter had doubtless left behind. If you don't settle them, Edith said, they'll go to her husband, and you wouldn't like that, would you? Roger said he would see to it, and one evening after dinner he started in on Laura's bills. It was rather an appalling time. He looked into his bank account and found that Laura's wedding would take about all his surplus. But this did not dismay him much, for money matters never did. It simply meant more work in the office. The next day he rose early and was in his office by nine o'clock. He had not been so prompt in months, and many of his employees came in late that morning. But nobody seemed very much perturbed, for Roger was an easy employer. Still, he sternly told himself he had been letting things get altogether too slack. He had been neglecting his business again. 
the work had become so cut and dried there was nothing creative left to do it had not been so in years gone by those years had fairly bristled with ideas and hopes and schemes but even those old memories were no longer here to hearten him they had all been swept away when bruce had made him move out of his office in a dark creaky edifice down close under brooklyn bridge and come up to this new building this steel-ribbed caravansary for all kinds of business ventures this place of varnished woodwork floods of daylight concrete floors this building fireproof throughout that expressed it exactly roger thought nothing could take fire here not even a man's imagination even though he did not feel old now and then in the elevator as some youngster with eager eyes pushed nervously against him roger would frown and wonder what are you so excited about but again the business was running down and this time he must jerk it back before it got beyond him he set himself doggedly to the task calling in his assistants one by one going through the work in those outer rooms where at tables long rows of busy young girls with colored pencils scissors and paste were demolishing enormous piles of newspapers and magazines and vaguely little by little he came to a realization of how while he had slumbered the life of the country had swept on for as he studied the lists and the letters of his patrons roger felt confusedly that a new america was here clippings 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 business men and business firms gigantic corporations kept sending here for clippings news of themselves or their rivals keeping keen watch on each other's affairs for signs of strength or weakness how savage was the fight these days here was news of mines and mills and factories all over the land clippings sent each morning by special messengers downtown to reach the brokers offices before the market opened one broker wrote please quote your terms for the following from nine to two o'clock each day our messenger will call at your office every hour for clippings giving information of the companies named below the long list appended carried roger's fancy out all over the continent and then came this injunction remember that our messenger must leave your office every hour in information of this kind every minute counts clippings 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 as roger turned over his morning mail in spite of himself he grew absorbed what a change in the world of literature what a host of names of scribblers not authors but just writers not only men but women too novelists and dramatists poets and muckrakers all jumbled in together each one of them straining for a place and the actors and the actresses the musicians and the lecturers each with his press agent and avid for publicity fame and here were society women from new york and other cities all eager for press notices of social affairs they had given or managed charity work they had conducted suffrage speeches they had made half the women of the land were fairly talking their heads off it seemed some had been on his lists for years they married and wanted to hear what was said in the papers about their weddings they quarrelled and got divorces and still sent here for clippings they died and still their relatives wrote in for the funeral notices 
and even death was commercialized. A maker of monuments wanted news of all people of large means, dead or dangerously ill, in the state of Pennsylvania. Here were demands from charity bodies, hospitals and colleges, from clergymen with an anxious eye on the Monday morning papers. And here was an anarchist millionaire. And here was an insane asylum, wanting to see itself in print. With a grim smile on his heavy visage, Roger stared out of his window. Slowly the smile faded. A wistful look came on his face. Who'll take my business when I'm gone? If his small son had only lived, with what new zest and vigor it might have been made to grow and expand, if only his son had been here by his side. Chapter 9 Deborah needed rest, he thought, for the bright, attracted face of his daughter was looking rather pale of late, and the birthmark on her forehead showed a faint, thin line of red. One night at dinner, watching her, he wondered what was on her mind. She had come in late, and though several times she had made an effort to keep up the conversation, her cheeks were almost colorless, and more than once in her deep-set eyes came a flash of pain that startled him. "'Look here, what's the matter with you?' he asked. Deborah looked up quickly. "'I'd rather not talk about it, Dad.' "'Very well,' he answered, and with a slight hesitation. "'But I think I know the trouble,' he said, "'and perhaps some other time, when you do feel like talking.' He stopped, for on her wide, sensitive lips he saw a twitch of amusement. "'What do you think is the trouble?' she asked, and Roger looked at her squarely. "'Loneliness,' he answered. Why, she asked himself, well, there is Edith's baby, and Laura getting married, I see, and so I'm lonely for a family of my own. But you're forgetting my school, she said. Yes, yes, I know, he retorted, but that's not at all the same. Interesting work, no doubt, but, well, it isn't personal. Oh, isn't it, she answered, and she drew a quivering breath. Rising from the table, she went into the living room, and there, a few moments later, he found her walking up and down. "'I think I will tell you now,' she said. "'I'm afraid of being alone to-night, of keeping this matter to myself.' He looked at her apprehensively. "'Very well, my dear,' he said. "'This is the trouble,' she began. "'Down in my school we've a family of about three thousand children. A few I get to know so well I try to follow them when they leave.' And one of these, an Italian boy, his name is Joe Bellini, was one of the best I ever had, and one of the most appealing. But Joe took to drinking and got in with a gang of boys who blackmailed small shopkeepers. He used to come to me at times in occasional moods of repentance. He was a splendid physical type, and he'd been a leader in our athletics, so I took him back into the school to manage our teams in basketball. He left the gang and stopped drinking, and we had long talks together about his great ambition. He wanted to enter the fire department as soon as he was twenty-one, and I promised to use my influence. She stopped, still frowning slightly. What happened? Roger asked her. His girl took up with another man, and Joe has hot Italian blood. He got drunk one night and shot them both. There was another silence. I did what I could, she said harshly, 
but he had a bad record behind him and the young assistant district attorney had his own record to think of too so joe got a death sentence we appealed the case but it did no good he was sent up the river and is in the death house now and he sent for me to come to-day his letter hinted he was scared he wrote that his priest was no good to him so i went up this afternoon joe goes to the chair to-morrow at six deborah went to the sofa and sat down inertly roger remained motionless and a dull chill crept over him so you see my work is personal he heard her mutter presently all at once she seemed so far away such a stranger to him in this life of hers by george it's horrible he said i'm sorry you went to see the boy i'm glad was his daughter's quick retort i've been getting much too sure of myself of my school i mean and what it can do i needed this to bring me back to the kind of world we live in what do you mean he roughly asked i mean there are schools and prisons and gallows and electric chairs and i'm for schools they've tried their jails and gallows for whole black hideous centuries what good have they done if they'd given joe back to the school and me i'd have had him a fireman in a year i know because i studied him hard he'd have grown fighting fires he would have saved lives again she stopped with a catch of her breath in suspense he watched her angry struggle to regain control of herself she sat bolt upright rigid her birthmark showed a fiery red in a few moments he saw her relax but of course she added wearily it's much more complex than that the school is nothing nowadays just by itself alone i mean it's only part of a city's life which for most tenement children is either very dull and hard or cheap and false and over-exciting and behind all that lie the reasons for that and there are so many reasons she stared straight past her father as though at something far away then she seemed to recall herself but i'm talking too much of my family roger carefully lit a cigar i don't think you are my dear i'd like to hear more about it she smiled to keep my mind off joe you mean and mine too he answered they had a long talk that evening about her hope of making her school what roger visaged confusedly as a kind of mammoth home the centre of a neighbourhood of one prodigious family at times when the clock on the mantel struck the hour loud and clear there would fall a sudden silence as both thought of what was to happen at dawn but quickly roger would question again and deborah would talk steadily on it was after midnight when she stopped you've been good to me to-night dearie she said let's go to bed now shall we very well he answered he looked at his daughter anxiously she no longer seemed to him mature he could feel what heavy discouragements what problems she was facing in the dark mysterious tenement world which he had chosen to make her own and compared to these she seemed a mere girl a child groping its way just making a start and so he added wistfully i wish i could be of more help to you she looked up at him for a moment do you know why you are such a help she said it's because you have never grown old because you've never allowed yourself to grow absolutely certain about anything in life a smile half sad and half perplexed 
came on her father's heavy face. "'You consider that a strong point?' he asked. "'I do,' she replied, compared to being a bundle of creeds and prejudices. "'Oh, I've got prejudices enough.' "'Yes,' she said, "'and so have I. "'But we're not even sure of them these days.' "'The world has a habit of crowding in,' her father muttered vaguely. "'Roger did not sleep that night.' He could not keep his thoughts away from what was going to happen at dawn. Yes, the city was crowding in upon this quiet house of his. Dimly he could recollect in the genial years of long ago, just glancing casually now and then at some small and unobtrusive notice in his evening paper, Execution at Sing Sing. It had been so remote to him but here it was smashing into his house through the life his own daughter was leading day and night among the poor each time he thought of that lad in a cell again a chill crept over him but savagely he shook it off and by a strong effort of his will he turned his thoughts to the things she had told him about her school yes in her main idea she was right he had no use for wild reforms but here was something solid, a good education for every child. More than once, while she had talked, something very deep in Roger had leaped up in swift response. For Deborah, too, was a part of himself. He, too, had had his feeling for humanity in the large. For years he had run a boys' club at a little mission school in which his wife had been interested and on Christmas Eve he had formed the habit of gathering up a dozen small urchins right off the street, and taking them round and fitting them out with good warm winter clothing, after which he had gone home to help Judith trim the Christmas tree and fill their children's stockings, and later, when she had gone to bed, invariably he had taken the Christmas carol from its shelf, and had settled down with a glow of almost luxurious brotherhood, there was sentiment in Roger Gale, and as he read of Tiny Tim, his deep-set eyes would glisten with tears. And now here was Deborah fulfilling a part of him in herself. You will live on in your children's lives. But this was going much too far. She was letting herself be swallowed up completely by this work of hers. It was all very well for the past ten years, but she was getting on in age high time to marry and settle down again angrily he shook off the thought of that boy joe alone in a cell eyes fixed in animal terror upon the steel door which would open so soon the day was slowly breaking it was the early part of june how fresh and lovely it must be up there in the big mountains with edith's happy little lads here it was raw and garish weird some sparrows began quarrelling just outside his window. Roger rose and walked to the room. Restlessly he went into the hall. The old house appeared so strange in this light as though stripped bare. There was something gone. Softly he came to Deborah's door. It was open wide, for the night had been warm, and she lay awake upon her bed with her gaze fixed on the ceiling. She turned her head and saw him there. He came in and sat down by her window. For a long time neither made a sound. Then the great clock on the distant tower, which had been silent through the night, resumed its deep and measured boom. It struck six times. There was silence again. 
more and more taut grew his muscles and suddenly it felt to him as though deborah's fierce agony were pounding into his very soul the slow slow minutes throbbed by at last he rose and left her there was a cold sweat on his brow i'll go down and make her some coffee he thought down in the kitchen was a relief to bang about hunting for the utensils on picnics up in the mountains his coffee had been famous he made some now and boiled some eggs and they breakfasted in deborah's room she seemed almost herself again later while he was dressing he saw her in the doorway she was looking at her father with bright and grateful affectionate eyes will you come to school with me today i'd like you to see it deborah said very well he answered gruffly End of section 3. Recording by James Carson.